Welcome to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection, and we are dependent on you, our community, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Danny and either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link through which we get a small percentage of all your purchases. Your support will allow Danny to continue his captivating talks and interviews. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg and this is Rock and Rolls. And today I'm speaking to one of my heroes as well as a friend, Tom Hayden. Tom's had an extraordinary influence on American political life and culture for many decades starting in the mid-60s as part of the Newark Community Union Project. Uh, prior to that, he had written the legendary Poor Huron Statement, which was one of the foundations of the New Left and the political aspect of the 60s. He was one of the Chicago Eight. He's the author of 21 books, uh, including recently Listen Yankee, Why Cuba Matters, Inspiring Participatory Democracy, Student Movements from Poor Huron Today to Today and the long 60s from 1960 to Barack Obama. His interests have been, he also was a a public official for 18 years in the state legislature of California, both the state assembly and the state senate, and over 100 bills were passed that he proposed during that time, affecting the lives of people in California. So Tom, this, This series of conversations and podcasts that I'm doing has to do in part with trying to connect spiritual life to external and real life. You were brought up Catholic? Yes. And does any of that stay with you? Or did you reject it? Uh, All of the above. Um, I was raised in in a suburban Michigan church, uh, dedicated to the little flower Teresa and uh, dominated by Father Charles Coughlin, who was uh, a pro-Nazi, extremely uh, influential priest, maybe the first of our, you you know, media. Yeah, he was an early talk radio demagogue, right? Well, I think you could say that he was also a, um, he was caught in, dabbling in the silver market. Uh, He was a friend of Henry Ford's who tried to start an American Nazi party. He was shut down by uh, the Vatican at the request of the Roosevelt administration for being, um, uh, I wouldn't wouldn't know how to describe it, but anti-Semitic is probably. Right, that's his, and and, and anti-New Deal obviously, right? Uh, well, he was pro-labor. Um, uh, it was a signal of things to come with labor. Um, it was a, he was a Catholic uh, labor supporter, and he he invented the first of these uh, demagogues that invented the way to talk to millions of people over a broadcast like this that came from the top of his church, uh, where you know I was a. Uh, uh, a kid, and so millions of Americans apparently turned off all the noise in their house, and and uh, you could hear them sitting on the porches listening to Father Coughlin every Sunday in the uh, the living rooms. And you um, actually were in churches where he spoke. I was in the little flower. I was in his church, and he was wow. my pastor. Yeah, um, what I remember about him was the the power of his voice. And the uh, scary things that he always said about hell, <clears throat> permanent fire really gets to you when you're yeah. 10 years old. Um, I don't remember the anti-Semitism that much, um, uh, but it was mainly, uh, you know, the sound and fury uh, and the, the, you know, the coming of hell. And I remember when... Um, General MacArthur was uh, booted out. Uh, um, we had a day of mourning in my class for General MacArthur. Um, I never knew what it was about, but 
I felt I felt the the feeling, um, and uh, basically, I learned that my friends who were Jewish uh, would would be separated from me because they would go to hell eternally, um, and they were just across Woodward Avenue, you know, like. <laughs> That was a Jewish community, and, right. and uh, they were my friends, and that was my first uh, intellectual challenge. If my friends were going automatically to hell to burn alive forever simply because they were Jewish, how how was it that they were also my friends? Why would I why why would I want to be friends with people who were facing that fate. So that got the questioning going, and we would always sit around drive-ins and pizzerias discussing the existence of God and, and uh, Jews and Christians and so on until I, I think I sunk my way out of it by the time I was uh, in high school. Even though it was a Catholic school, I went to a public high school. And there were just too many questions that were unanswerable, so I gradually separated. So by the time you got to college, did you define yourself as an atheist, an agnostic, a lapsed Catholic, or or any of the combination of those things? I think in between. I think I was a former Catholic. You could call it lapsed today, I guess, but, but um, not quite a full atheist, more a, a questioner. Um, right. Was named- I was named after St. Thomas Aquinas, who was, you know, one of the big intellectuals in the medieval church and, and was always questioning and was considered uh, too heavy to, uh, to, to, to quite grasp. So I grew up in a Catholic tradition. I think that's for sure. I mean, this is presumptuous of me, but I always had this feeling that there was part of your moral core and what drove you politically was somehow connected to an aspect of, of, of the Catholic upbringing. Is, is that, is that the delusional on my part or was there something that seeped through separate and apart from the right wing political, um, construct of that particular guy? There's fragments here and there. I remember going around father Coughlin's church, church of the little flower. And like in all these gigantic churches, they would have, um, little tabernacles or places where there would be statues of saints. And uh, somehow uh, I was drawn to the notion that it was a church of the martyrs because I would see, um, who was it, St. Michael, with all the Roman arrows and spears in his poor body and he's leaning over and so on. And I had the same feeling about Jesus being persecuted and killed, assassinated by the uh, the Romans, and that's where I first learned about you know snitches and people that uh, betrayed others, and that that there was a a sin sinful side of human nature, I guess, that was universal that had to be dealt with. But I didn't. Um, I didn't go all the way because it was too hard to believe that my Jewish friends were going to hell. And it seemed too easy to think that just because I was a Catholic, I was going to heaven. And then he started to ask about what heaven is. And so, Danny, I've been with those questions for 60 years. Yeah. What do you make of Dr. King's uh, version of Christianity? Did that have an impact on you or was it just a separate civil rights movement that happened to be a, a, a preacher? Both. I was I was living in uh, Atlanta, Georgia, uh, not far from uh, Ebenezer Baptist Church, where I, I worshiped sometimes, but I was of a generation of 20, 21-year-olds who um, had this, uh, I think, ego rivalry with Dr. King over who was the leader, mm. and they kind of make fun of him as the preacher uh, uh, because they didn't like uh, the black preachers in general. But it was a generational conflict, and they obviously respected Dr. King and drew much nearer to him uh, as time went on. So 
I I was uh, uh, one of the youngsters uh, that was around the outer edge of his circle. Um, uh, I'd go to Ebenezer to uh, to hear him preach. I would. I went on a freedom ride in Albany, Georgia, where we were all um, uh, trying to desegregate the uh, train system and uh, were arrested and rearrested and put in jail afterwards. And then when we finally made bail, Dr. King welcomed us each into his big arms with a big smile uh, at the church in uh, Albany. So... It was that kind of relationship. He was the leader of an uh, an earlier generation. I don't remember if it was ten years, but in those days, ten years was a big distance in yeah. time. Yeah, fifteen and twenty-five, twenty and thirty, and I was uh, probably twenty-one when I went uh, went on the Freedom Ride. Right. So it would have been ten, fifteen years great, younger than him. Yeah. He's always had a, a great influence on me um, politically and. Uh, uh, I've I've studied his historical works, his speeches. They're on a collection at Stanford with uh, Clay Claiborne, the uh, historian. And uh, I've, I I knew his wife for quite some some time, and I I met all of his children, and I was very close to Andy Young through his mayorship of uh, Atlanta. So there was a circle of black Protestant. Christians, whose roots, even more important to me, were in slavery and the spirituals. And uh, th- that uh, black tradition of music uh, transformed a lot of us. So as the 60s went on, not everybody on the left agreed with nonviolence. Um, did you grapple with that? And, and where did you come out on it at different times? I grappled with it, and I came out at, at different places depending on circumstances. But um, I don't think I quite made it to the spiritual nonviolence. Um, but I certainly embraced the idea of non- nonviolence being a practical, pragmatic, uh, effective way to communicate. As a tactic, yeah. Uh, but it's more than a tactic because your life is at stake. I mean, I had my head beaten in and been dragged around in Albany, Georgia, by a guy that wanted to kill me. And uh, the uh, only a newspaper photographer told me to leave town with my friend Paul Potter that night, or we would have been, uh, he said, lynched at our hotel. Um, so uh, saving your own life is no small matter. And... Uh, uh, nonviolence was always, I, we always saw that as the way to spread the message to larger constituencies. And those would include, you know, the Jewish community, the Catholic community, the, you know, the Protestant churches, and above all, the black churches. When I was reading the, uh, the long 60s, it seemed to me that you had a real uh, criticism of, of the hippie side of the counterculture that it that it that it was somehow undermining the political seriousness that you were engaged with. Uh, talk about that a little bit, because I'm a big fan of the hippie culture. You no, know, you're you're hippie to the bone. Uh, <laughs> you have the teen spirit going, um, you know, and you've been in business with many of the musical greats of our time. So um, it's it's not simple, but you know I'm I've always been uh, accused of being straight and uh, too political, uh, and therefore opportunist um, uh, by the uh, revolutionaries of the counterculture and the left. Um, all I can say is that I'm still here. Well, there's of, no question about that. It's unbelievable. <laughs> That's something I want to talk about more: is how to just stay so energized and motivated it's such an inspiration to me and and to a lot of other people but i don't want to leave the 60s yet in the conversation let me tell you why what depressed me about the counterculture um there's a, a genius there 
artistic and cultural and political, but it's a manic genius. It's an ego-driven genius, um, and it it alienates uh, too many. Always alienated too many people for me, um, and um, the thing that. Was in the total number of uh, um, suicides of amazing talents musicians. Suicide after suicide after suicide meant that something was wrong organically. Something, something was not well. And the promotion of any kind of art that brings about that kind of suicide. Um, I wouldn't say it turned me off, it just flattened me. It was the equivalent of all the Kennedys and King being mur murdered on a, a somewhat lesser scale, of course, but um, these were unnecessary deaths of people. Well, there's no question. Within a one-year period, Janis Joplin, Jim Morrison, and Jimi Hendrix all died either by suicide or by suicidal behavior. Uh, and 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 dr hard drugs. I mean, there's no question. There was that whole cut thing about you know psychedelics versus hard drugs, and heroin in particular has a very bad track record on the human spirit and and the human body. But there are people who didn't kill themselves. I mean, Wavy Gravy is still alive. Bob Dylan is still alive. John Lennon was murdered, but he certainly was not suicidal. So I, I you know, I, I you know George Harrison died of cancer. He wasn't suicidal. So I mean, I think. Tim Leary died of cancer. I mean, you know, Ram Dass is still alive. I mean, there's a lot of people that were among the 100 or 200 kind of thought leaders along with you at the time that were not suicidal. And, and there's just no question that artists, whether it's Billie Holiday or any generation, there's a certain percentage of artists for some reason have the suicidal chip. But what about the non-suicidal ones? Well, let's go back to the suicides because... Um I think you lessened the numbers. I remember reading an article in Rolling Stone 25 years ago that listed over 50 who had died in the recent past year or two, and it was all uh, overdose uh, and suicide. So the numbers are far more than 50 uh, at this point, and let's just let it go at that. Uh, as to the, um, I mean, I put Abby on that list too. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but um, what about the ones that survived? <clears throat> uh, yeah, they did. There was damage done, but they survived. And a lot of them went through treatment and went through uh, programs of recovery and still do, uh, for, have done for a very, very long time to maintain a kind of sobriety and reach a, a wisdom stage. And I certainly credit them for that. So your main criticism, that aspect of the counterculture that particularly bothered you was, was sort of hard drugs and the self-destructiveness of that piece of it, not the, uh, not the sort of, because uh, there's some people that I've heard on the left who also were critical of sort of the... Um, uh, inner quest that the, they, they felt that people who went inward were were um, were not as um, as serious or as moral. But I know in your book you talked a lot favorably about Gary Snyder. Uh, yeah. Uh, so talk a little about that and your relationship with him and how how that fits into the way you view that period. I pray that Gary is still around. He lost his wife uh, not too long ago. Mm. He should be up in uh, Northern California. Um, I should check in on him because he's he's getting on in years. But um, no, he was interesting guy. He um, always a you know good friend. Um, he. Um, I guess he became more political when our friend Jerry Brown appointed him to the Arts Council, California Arts Council. Uh, I guess for people who don't know, I should say Gary Snyder is a, a poet associated with the Beatniks who also is a, right. a, a, a Buddhist of, of real seriousness. And I think he has some, uh, an abbot or a roshi of some 
of, of, of some yeah. standing in, in a Buddhist tradition. Uh, no, he sits, he sits uh, every day for hours uh, up north. But then there was also Allen Ginsberg, who was yeah. quite serious. Um, Allen came out of a uh, Marxist Jewish family in New York, and Gary was a working-class guy who got... Uh, he took up uh, uh, yoga and he he studied in uh, Japan. He went he went abroad for much or most of the '60s, if I'm not mistaken, and then came back around the time of the Summer of Love. Yeah, so, I've seen footage of him at the at the Human Bee Inn in January yeah. of '67. He was there sitting next to Alan. Uh... So these are serious gentlemen. Yeah, I did. I didn't agree with them, but uh, serious they were. Definitely. Well, what's the nature of your disagreement with them? They were not heroin addicts or self-destructive people. No, no. I thought um, um, in your business we would call them performance artists. In other words, their politics was a kind of expression in poetry, writing. Um, chanting, um, zazen, um, and uh, I thought there was a side to it of um, uh, navel-gazing among some of the crew, and uh, they were not engaged Buddhists until a, a, a later phase of their Buddhist journey, and uh, I I'm, was and am all for engaged Buddhism. Uh, but that was about it. They were just more um, uh, in the uh, the dropout and uh, alienated culture. And <clears throat> um, who knows in the scheme of things how much influence they've had with all their work. But it's, um, shall we say, substantial. And I, I respect them and love them for that. Well, your your work has been driven, it seems, by this this fierce compassion for people that are uh, treated badly, whether they're minorities, uh, uh, gang members, uh, immigrants, uh, people affected by environmental disaster, uh, people victims of war, um, uh, victims of racism or other kinds of prejudice. Where did that passion come from? I mean, what what is the connective tissue between kind of the anti-Semitic and uh, hellfire Catholic priest that that told you your Jewish friends were going to hell and this 60 years of committed activism uh, sometimes you know you're on a big stage sometimes on a smaller stage but the intensity it seems to me has been unwavering and do you have a so. sense of where that comes from? I just know that I need to maintain it and that you either wake up with it every day or you don't but um I don't know exactly where it comes from. I was a student editor, which is so I started with questioning authority, including the Catholic authorities, and I ended up questioning my parents' world, of course, and the military. But the the principal experience, I think, was going at an early age uh, to to the South, and uh, I went there. Uh, before I was 21, um, I don't know exactly when, but I, I went from Ann Arbor with a carload of food and some friends down to, uh, to Tennessee to where some sharecroppers had been um, thrown off their land for demanding the right to vote. And so I was writing an article for the Michigan Daily at the time and distributing food uh, it's certainly a Catholic thing to distribute food because of the impact of the famine on Gorta Moore on our on our lives. Um, and uh, I was I remember being scared to death because the sheriff came with chains and his flashers going and I'd never seen a southern sheriff quite face to face like this on a dark night and I remember my legs trembled, they shook. And he told us we had to get the hell out of town, so we drove at 80 miles an hour on a road, followed by another carload of Klansmen or uh, 
uh, clan types chasing us for an hour. And uh, that was visceral, totally visceral. And um, it, um, you needed the church, some church, uh, as backup or as an embrace. Um, because I you kept mean the institution of the church and the prestige that it had in the community or, or some other aspect of the church? In the African-American church. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, there are some black atheists, but I don't know many. And even the ones that are not directly affiliated are affiliated. And mm. the church is the central institution, whether it's Macomb, Mississippi, or, or Albany, Georgia, or South Central Los Angeles. And so I had to respect um, the church and, and leave off the, um, the diatribes of my young militant friends who were always complaining about the preachers. My, my reason was it's been around for these hundreds of years and it's given solace to so many people and it's been shelter and center, central headquarters for this movement, uh, I have to respect it. I have to turn to it for counsel. I mean, that's one reason um, I'm, I'm more sympathetic uh, to the Hillary Clinton types than to the Bernie types, I guess, even though both are religious and I have deep ties to the uh, Jewish community too. But uh, I go with the black church. I go with the black leadership. That's who I go with. At the end of the day, uh, no matter what I personally think, my respect for what they have suffered and survived for 500 years, uh, that's what prevails. Mm. Well, I know I'm lucky enough to be on an email list where you've been writing kind of an ongoing analysis of the um, Democratic race for the nomination for president. So it's a good moment to, sh to shift to that. Although I'm not promising, I won't go back in the past again. But what 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 is the um, where where are you as you as you as you look at at this um, at, at these two uh, groups of friends of ours who both mean well and 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 one is saying that they're more uh, right on the issues and that the, the corruption of the Goldman Sachs of the world is just too corrosive to continue and the hawkishness. And on the other hand, the feeling of, uh, you know, uh, competence and knowing how to operate the executive branch of the government. And the uh, on the one hand, you've got the support of the black church and the older black community, but younger black thought leaders like Michelle Alexander uh, and Tonda Hazy Coates and others are, are for Bernie. So it's not like the black community intellectually is completely united on this. No. Um, and I... I I, I read their writings. I'm a, a student of um, all the uh, seminal work on mass incarceration. Um, I would ordinarily um, vote for Bernie because all of my left-wing friends are for Bernie. Um, I, I thought at the beginning, I was one of those people at the beginning that thought you can support Bernie because he'll push Hillary to the left. Right. And then Bernie started doing so well, you had to admire uh, what he's built as a social movement of historic proportions. Uh, and uh, who knows, he may still win. Uh, the numbers don't look good for him, but but he, he's going to be a historic figure um, in any event. But, <clears throat> of course, not if the Democrats lose. Correct. Not if the Democrats lose. Not if the Democrats lose. Um, and so it's it's a very hard choice for me because he's better on most issues, um, and I go with the black church and mm. the black caucus. Yeah, I go with them. I go with the Latino caucus in Sacramento. I just go with them. Right. Because to say no to them is to say no to too much of my own life to ever um, be comfortable with turning my back on uh, the black community. Not, notwithstanding, you know, they're, you know, all these younger people, uh, but they don't have the experience of the early 60s. 
they're they're just not they're in another black lives matter world and they're kind of recycling the earlier uh, civil rights struggle and i don't know who will win but um i my priority is to bring um the Hillary camp and the Bernie camp together in a common ticket and a common platform, whoever it is, so that we can avoid uh, losing a close election. We've seen too many stolen elections and close elections. If Hillary wins, she has an obligation to offer Bernie the vice presidency. Whether she wants to, her, her business. Whether Bernie would even consider it his business, but they have to work out solutions on TPP, uh, single payer health care, uh, several issues, and there's a whole lot of people, you know, in the hundreds of thousands, probably in the small millions, who already uh, support Bernie and refuse under any circumstances to ever vote for Hillary. So that's my work in the next little. In the next little while. Well, I'm with you on that completely. I think it's in the hundreds of thousands. That's what I'm praying. If it's in the millions, we're in trouble. But I think the biggest job for Hillary, assuming she gets the nomination, is to figure out how to communicate with with people uh, under 40. That's that's the uh, the older lefties that are, you know just uh, hate the establishment or are mad at the Democrats have their own psychology that may or may not be reachable. But this group of under forty people are not part of all the Nader dramas or the old dramas. They're they're they really just need a signal that that, that somebody is listening to them, and she's somehow got to make them feel that she's listening to them. That's that's my theory yeah. of how how to get get it those particular few million people. I, I think the fear of Donald Trump is the biggest factor that would help the ticket. Yeah. Uh, but it's not enough. I mean, a lot of these young people are sworn to uh, never vote ever in their life for a Democrat or for Hillary. And um, that's an emotional question for them because this is the, their birthright into movement building and politics. So. Uh, I don't think they're sworn to never vote for a Democrat. I just think they would like it if this if a Democrat would talk to them. Um, I really don't think I mean, there's a subculture of Occupy people that may feel that way. But that's a small number of people, in my opinion. I think these masses of million of people. My son is voting, you know, in college at Northwestern and him and his friends are, are for Bernie. He's certainly not swearing to never vote for a Democrat or any of those, any of his friends. That's 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 not in their head at all. It's just, does somebody care about what they care about who's running for president? And I, my fear is that Trump is gonna run to the left of Hillary on some issues. He's He has no principles as far as we can tell. And he'll say, uh, he could come out for single payer health care and say that he's against the, you know, some of his foreign policy things sound a lot like uh, like stuff that you and I would agree with lately, you know, in terms of uh, um, withdrawing. But so so my fear is that he's going to masquerade as a as a uh, as a, a, a as as to her left on some of these issues and try to get some of the Bernie people. And, yes. And her job is to communicate with them somehow. Yes. I don't think that the Donald um, shows any sign yet of changing his uh, uh, irrational and uh, insightful behavior. It may be so natural to him that he can't uh, pivot to the yeah, left. It may be like a Tourette syndrome where he can't actually control yeah. himself. That's what we're all hoping but, for. We have all the clips of the uh, hideous things that he said to about 15 different social groups, including the military. It goes on and on. So that may be it. But, you know, on the on the issue of TPP, um, uh, that's where I think Hillary has to move much more strongly. Um, thanks to the uh, labor movement, she's come out against the TPP. But then the Bernie people jump on her as being too little, too late. And a lot of her supporters think she'll be like Obama and she'll revert back to a, a free trade. Uh, I think that her problem is uh, always uh, 
you know, trying to go down the middle, which antagonizes people on both sides of her. And the Trump voters, the white working class voters, the union voters, where you and I come from, I certainly come from Michigan, are done with, uh, they're just done with uh, free trade, NAFTA, CAFTA, TPP, and they don't want to hear about it. And they've lost so many hundreds of thousands of jobs and their homes are foreclosed that it's, I think, the most emotional issue uh, of our time. And for the young ones, it's tuition and the likelihood of winding up uh, poor like their parents or barely barely making it like their parents. So, or more poor than their parents. Yeah, so she has to speak to that. She can't just say, I like you, I applaud you. That's good. Yeah. Uh, I appreciate you. I'm for you. Um, but the more she can do that, um, it, uh, with Bernie's leadership on that, if it comes down to that, the more likely we are to win. But, you know, the last time this happened with uh, your friend Ralph. Um, I was in those conversations at the end, and uh, no matter how you cut it, um, he could have turned his following to uh, Gore at the end or chosen to only only ask his voters to vote for him in states that he was already going to win. He would have wound up with Gore as president and him as the number one public interest lobbyist in it's the century. And now, um, I don't know how many Democrats there are, but he is so hated by Democrats. He is so toxic. I feel so sorry for him. Yeah. Uh, but that's what happens. And uh, Well, I, I, I think uh, he, he did a, You know, he changed his... Not worth reliving his mistakes. I uh, I agree with the fundamental thing that you're saying, but I also feel that a number of us were trying to get Gore to talk to the people that were attracted by Ralph at the time, and that to say, me. speak to them, say, acknowledge their idealism, acknowledge that you respect them, and he wouldn't do it. He, he it was beneath I, him, and if, I feel if Gore had made a direct appeal to the Nader voters, it also would have had a huge effect. And that's the kind of mistake that we also don't want to see a Democrat repeating. The advantage of Bernie is he's not running as a third party candidate. He, he wouldn't. He eschewed that. And I'm positive that at least publicly he'll support Hillary if she gets the nomination. But we don't want it to be like the Ted Kennedy lukewarm endorsement of Jimmy Carter in 1980. You want a full throated Bernie there. And she has to somehow motivate that so that he could do that without losing his credibility. Right. Well, the motivation would be to defeat uh, Trump. <laughs> the second motivation would be to secure some platform planks that uh, both candidates have finally agreed to. I think we can get somewhere on single payer by 2020, two more election cycles. We, we can definitely get somewhere on TPP because that's a closed uh, judicial proceeding that's kind of like a star chamber. and. It should just be opened up. Um, we can get somewhere on gun control, um, I think. But, uh, and on tuition. Tuition, do- I think, is such a big deal. And I really don't understand. There's an intellectual dishonesty when I've heard her say, and believe me, I'm fine with Hillary Clinton being president, and I expect that she's going to be, and I, and I certainly don't want a Republican to win. But that thing of saying, well, I don't think Donald Trump's kids or our kids should go to college for free, that's really not intellectually honest because those kids are going to go to Ivy League private colleges, pay a lot of tuition. It's about public universities being free is Bernie's platform. He's not saying every university should be free. No, but her, her problem, once again, is... Uh, going down the middle uh, time after time, like on health care, she's for health care for all now, but also for Obamacare. Uh, and she doesn't offer a pass through the congressional right. election. And on, on, on tuition, uh, she, she's prone to say, I have a plan that's been written by the smartest people I know. And in our plan, uh, well, then she loses the tuition issue. Uh, uh, and on the other hand, 
Bernie doesn't have it quite either because whoever's president is going to have a hostile House of Representatives, uh, and it's going to be very hard to reduce tuition. But I think it can be done. Uh, and there's, if Hillary wants to take the posture that really rich kids don't have to have zero tuition, that's called a phased roll-in. That's called a multi-tier tuition reduction. Uh, we know all this. We've legislated all this, done it in California. So I think she would be better um, sounding more, you know, passionate to the uh, young people about tuition than trying to offer a different path that goes through some complexity to get less of a result. I, I don't understand this this tendency in her, but I'm working on it. I, you know, there's a lot of people who are Hillary people who are very good friends of mine. And, yeah. You know, I email them too. You know some of them. And I just work on it. They get upset if I'm uh, not for her. I know. Well, the funny thing is she loves to quote Mario Cuomo saying that we campaign in poetry and we govern in prose, but she forgets she's campaigning. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this is the moment for poetry. Exactly. She, no one's saying she shouldn't govern in prose. I mean, Obama I was the classic example of campaigning in poetry and governing in prose. I don't care if she, can, if she governs in poetry. I just care about defeating Trump. Yeah and lessening the divisions between her and Bernie so that less scar tissue and less um, bruising occurs, resulting in a lower turnout of independent, disaffected voters in November. Yeah. That's my job. It's not a very long job. It's a four-month job. But, <laughs> but, well, you have a longer job, which is, seems to be most of your adult life, which is to being this force to try to improve things for people. Um, but we know that these lives don't last forever and there is some other dimension to existence. Exactly. Do you, do you have any uh, spiritual construct that, other than being ethical and a great person that, that you think about as, you, as, as we all get older or, or are you just kind of one day at a timing it? No, no. I, I, uh, we, we left off earlier. I passed deeply, deeply... Uh, in the Central America years into liberation theology. Right. I spent uh, many trips to um, uh, <clears throat> Brazil, uh, to um, El Salvador, uh, to the church where the Monsignor was assassinated, mm. to the place where the uh, priests and nuns were assassinated. Mm. Um, I prayed in that garden. I know about death and... Um, it's not a um, it's not a pleasant journey into any kind of death, um, but it takes me back to the idea of the Church of the Martyrs. What do you, you know, make of Pope Francis? Well, he's a turning point in my life, and I was going to say also, it's not just that I was a Catholic; I was an Irish Catholic, and not that I was an Irish Catholic. I was an Irish nationalist, right? Supporting the peace process for twenty trips to Ireland in the nineties, and that was possible because of the leadership of the revolutionaries and the leadership of the liberals, and the leadership of Father Alex Reed uh, in Belfast, who worked behind the scenes to orchestrate a rapprochement in a place where you could get guilt, killed for shaking hands with the wrong person. Mm. As to uh, Pope Francis... Mm. Uh, yes, I was in, you're, I, we're on a Skype and you're showing me his uh, paper on uh, the environment. Is that right? Yeah, there's the one that has all the autographs. It's the wrong one. He's not video. We're on it right here. Yes, Encyclical on Climate Change and Inequality on Care for Our Common right. Home, Pope Francis. So you, uh, you approve of this? See if you can see this. Uh, Tom, thank this you. This is handwriting. I cannot really read what it says. Anyway, 
I was, uh, this is my, my moment of terrible immodesty. I was invited uh, to the White House to greet uh, and to the Congress to greet the coming of Pope Francis to meet with President Obama. Um, I, I chose not to go because I was recovering from a stroke and I didn't want to be around 100 degree weather for two or three days. Mm. This is one of my precious possessions. It's signed by many of the people that worked on and authored the encyclical. And I met with them um, at a meeting of bishops and lay Catholics under the sponsorship of Senator de Leon in, uh, in Sacramento for an all-day seminar on the meaning of the encyclical where I spoke. So uh, he's, what, no matter what you think you disagree with, and the attitudes towards the Pope are the same as the attitudes towards anybody with power or anybody in office, people immediately go to what they hate about him or hate about the church or resent about the church and can't get over um, it. Is, it is one of the uh, seminal documents of our times, if you read it, because, of course, having gone to Catholic schools, I was trained in the catechism. And this mm. is precise Jesuit thinking on every particular point. And if you internalize it, it really uh, touches you. I mean, this is a man who considers all of creation uh, to be holy, not just the humans that were created uh, along with the rest of us, but the flowers, the trees, the plants, the animals, all is holy. And that's a, that's a spirituality that is shared by many across uh, spiritual lines, mm. and I feel it. I don't, I mean, how many people feel it? It's probably a majority of Americans. They might not phrase it the same way. But, you know, only the f extreme right fanatics uh, still think that God created only us to be the shepherds over everything else. And he did it in this short period of time. And that's it. That's it. I don't believe that. I, I don't believe that subjects itself to rational inquiry and jesuits are rational they're even rational about what faith is so yeah no this had a huge impact on me i spent much of this year on this subject excellent well that's and saint francis is my man saint francis is somebody that you look to yes yeah if you read step 12 of aa uh you'll or step 11 you'll find uh when they talk about getting closer to god since they're anonymous, AA, they can't mention his name, but they said a long time ago there was a very great man who has been known as a saint ever since, and he, he spoke these words, which we recommend that everybody in recovery read every day, uh, and that's the St. Francis Prayer, and I've known that all my life. That's really a very deep subject to me. It brings me to tears. So something, something, it's interesting that in the midst of a right-wing Father Coughlin, the, the energy and spirit of St. Francis could survive that and get through uh, unsullied. It could have been um, Cesar Chavez. It could have been the UFW priests. It certainly was the priests in uh, El Salvador who yeah. gave everything. Um, I knew them. I interviewed these people. I was friends with them. Um, when they die, uh, you die with them. You just don't, you don't get over the assassination of Archbishop Romero. Right. Or the nuns in El Salvador. You so you, you knew Romero? You spoke to him? No, I went to the church where he was murdered. Yeah, I went there too, yeah. And uh, uh, I met the people at the uh, university there who were sponsored by him. They were theologians. And uh, they were working with the uh, dispossessed young people of El Salvador. Hmm. Uh, but I also met uh, the, what's his name, the Red, the, the red Bishop of Recife. <laughs> what's his name? In, in, uh, in Brazil with Jerry Brown at the uh, uh, first UN summit. 
Well, um, man, so you've written, as I say, 21 books. I've written two, and I'm never going to catch up with you. But I, I hope you write about Catholicism sometime. I think you've got a particular energy about it that would be very uh, positive for the world. So uh, I, I hope that can join your vast uh, body of work. And I, like uh, man, I thank you so much for what you do day oh, after day, year after year. You've been such an inspiration and hero to me. And I thanks for spending a little time talking about God this God bless stuff. you, and I hope it's been helpful. It has been. God bless. Okay, bye. Later. After Tom Hayden hung up, I realized there were two things that I wanted to add. First, go to TomHayden.com to find out both about his illustrious past and his extraordinarily intellectually alive present. Secondly, I want to read or recite the St. Francis prayer that Tom says he says every day. It's one that my teacher Hilda loved. It's one that I love, and it's one that I don't think people always think of one of the founders of SDS and members of the Chicago 8 saying. And it goes like this, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace. Where there is darkness, let me shine light. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is sadness, joy. And where there is hatred, love. Lord, bless me that I do not seek so much to be consoled, so much as to console. That I do not seek so much to be understood as to understand. That I do not seek so much to be pardoned as to pardon. That I do not seek so much to be loved as to love. For it is in giving we receive, it is in pardoning we are pardoned, and it is in dying we are born to eternal life. Although my teacher Hilda used to do her version of it, saying it's in surrendering we are born to eternal life. So with that, I thank Tom Hayden again. Thanks for listening to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. We appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Danny. Thank you.